0: This is a Studio Scotch podcast presented by Scotch College, Western Australia. Hi, this is Sam Sterrett. And I'm Steve McLean. And this is The Range Project, a podcast that explores the
1: benefits and challenges of interdisciplinary education.
0: Today's guest on The Range Project is Professor Peter Quinn. Peter is the Executive Director of ICRA. The International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, an organisation spearheading one of the largest scientific endeavours in history, the mighty Square Kilometre Array Telescope. This is a telescope 20 years in the making, one that will allow us to look back to the very first objects ever formed in the universe, and importantly, one that is being built right here in Western Australia. This is a wide-ranging conversation as Peter shares insights from his incredible career in astronomy. We discuss dark matter, black holes, the edge of the universe, future careers in astronomy, the benefits of taking multiple pathways as a scientist, and all the recent news on the development of this world-conquering telescope. We hope you enjoy our chat with Professor Peter Quinn. Peter Quinn, thank you very much for joining us on the Range Project tonight. Pleasure. Now, we're really, really excited to have you on the show. You are the current Executive Director of ICRA, mm-hmm. um, involved with the Square Kilometer Array Project yep. and and others. Yep. We need to have a bit of a shout out to your beautiful wife, Kate Quinn, who is our Director of Advancement and Philanthropy, who's Ooh. in the studio with us tonight. Wise move. <laughs> so welcome, Kate. Thank you. We want to zoom in right now on exactly what's happening at ICRA uh, and particularly with the Square Kilometre Array and how that's developing.
2: So it's a particularly important time, actually. In fact, today and tomorrow, um, there's a meeting going on, unfortunately a virtual meeting in the current world, but a meeting of the SKA Council, okay? And the SKA Council is the governing body of the project. They're meeting um, to decide to begin the project after 20 years of... Uh, planning and conjoling and fighting and, and fundraising, it's time that we actually made a decision. Yes, we can start this project and dig the first hole and build the first thing. So that's happening today and tomorrow. So it's a very timely uh, occasion to talk about the SKA. It has been something that's been in the minds of many people around the world for at least 20 years to be able to build a telescope that's big enough to see effectively back to the very first objects that ever formed in the universe. So that's kind of the holy grail of astronomy. Uh, we know how big it kind of has to be to be that sort of powerful a telescope. It has to be like a million square metres of collecting area to do that. And that's no mean feat. Um, it's about 3,000 times better than anything that's ever been built before. Um, if you look at the history of telescope builders and look at their track record, their, their report card, they... Every 20 years, kind of build something that's 5 or 10 times better than the previous 20 years. Now we're asking in this one 20-year generation of telescope builders to build something 3,000 times better. That's a game changer. In fact, it's that factor of 3,000 is exactly the same ratio as the distance from the Earth's orbit to the moon. Um, so three, 100 kilometers versus three, three, 300,000 kilometers. So it's an Apollo-like ambition, it's an Apollo like achievement when it gets done, uh, but it does have the ability to open up potential to discover things we've never dreamed of, and
1: it's happening says. in our backyard
2: and it's happening here in West Australia's back garden and it's happening on the time scale of the young people that are in school right now uh, in the years nine, ten you know whatever it is they are going to be in universities and graduating and becoming interested in science at exactly the time when this telescope first turns on. So. How long was it on your radar
1: for, so to speak, when you first first heard about it and wanted to work for it and
2: now is your role as director? Is that correct? Yeah. So, look, it's a long story in the sense that um, – if you became an astronomer or a researcher in Australia when I did in the early, graduated with a PhD in the early 1980s, it was like obligatory to get kicked out of the country and go overseas and work overseas. It was, you know, that was part of, when I first arrived at Mount Stromlo, where I did my PhD, on the very first day, the director said, don't unpack. Right. In three years time, you're getting on a plane and you're going somewhere else because as a researcher to expand your horizons, you had to go and work all over the world in Europe or America or where I happened to be. So I was kicked out of Australia and I spent 27 years in America and Europe and South America doing research work Um because those were the places where the big projects were running. There were no big projects in Australia in astronomy. Um, we didn't have any high mountains. We didn't have any, you know, attractive places to build big telescopes in some sense. So we were in Europe and it was, you know, we would always wanted to come back to Australia, be part of the academic environment back here. Um, and it was the fact that all of a sudden there was a telescope that actually wanted to be in Australia, wanted to have access to the remoteness of the West Australian desert. So I had the chance to use my interest in astronomy, my interest in big projects, and my interest in coming home all collided together in about 2005. And I applied for a position back here in Australia and got it.
0: So what were some of the earliest conversations you had about the square kilometer array
2: and when it was you know the, the the birth of the idea and i knew about it when i was in europe so i was in europe working for a big organization in europe doing more or less optical astronomy projects in in south america mostly which is another interesting whole story but um i knew the square kilometer array was it was an idea people wanted to build a very large radio telescope so telescopes come in all sorts of flavors and shapes and sizes some that produce some of the detect optical light you can see with your eyes, some that x-rays and gamma rays and things, but this was a radio telescope project. I was not a radio astronomer. I was more of an astrophysicist, to be honest with you, but I knew there was an aspiration to build this very large radio telescope because We wanted to push back our view of the universe to a very, very early point, the very first objects that were created, and it just so happens that most of the energy, most of the signals that are generated at that point in the universe arrive at the Earth in the radio part of the spectrum, so you have to build a radio telescope if you want to look at it. So I knew that was all going when I was based in Europe. I thought, you yeah, know, that's an exciting project. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to be part of it because it's was going to address some of the questions that I was interested in, you know, dark matter and dark energy and things. So then a, a, an opportunity appeared, right? So the West Australian government, um, the Australian Commonwealth government were keen to build new institutes in Australia to take advantage. If Australia was going to be the host, in particular West Australia was going to be the host of this uh, project, we need institutes, we need people, we need... Things to in Australia to basically, you know, anchor the return from that project in Australia, not, not just go elsewhere in the world. So I guess it was in the early, you know, 2004, 2005, 2006, when I was really started to kind of get interested in the possibility of being engaged in the Square Kilometre Prey. But it had been going for many years before that. As I said, it's been going for 20 or 30 years. The like concept in some sense. Mm. Financially, this is about double the size of your pre- previous project, I think. Um, it's a, it's comparable. So if I, okay. if, if you look at, um, um, the large telescope, the optical telescope project. So I was involved with an organization in Europe called the European Southern Observatory. They're based in Munich. They've been going for about 60 years. They do, they build telescopes and run observatories for the European research community in some sense. Their main facility is in Chile in South America because that's one of the best places in the world for optical telescopes. Um, and they have been building basically one billion euro class projects. So the project I worked on mostly, which was in a place called Serra Paranal up in the Atacama Desert, um, it was four big telescopes all linked together, optical telescopes linked together, and that was about a billion euros worth of investment, new investment in, in telescopes. Uh, and then they built another one after that, which was a radio telescope there, which was another one billion euro project. So these one billion euro projects in optical sort of, domain have been around for a while the space telescopes project i was involved with the hubble space telescope there was a six billion dollar project uh to build the hubble space telescope um so yeah so those that's the sort of numbers that get bandaged around so we knew the ska was going to be in the multi-billion dollar range in some sense and what do you learn when you're working with multinationals with uh
1: various different companies this large project can get so confusing and so many arguments probably arise in its design its construction and Project management. What have you got out
2: of that that you can now bring to the SKA? Tolerance. Um, (laughs) So you um, you have to be a good tolerant person. So I, you know, I it was a really interesting learning curve to go into these kind of big international projects. So Hubble was interesting because it was I was inside NASA and NASA basically solved all those problems for you in some sense. Um, Then I went back to Australia and did some research work, and then went to this appointment in in ESO in Munich. I was an astronomer. I was, I was, you know, a researcher. I did research using supercomputers and looking at dark matter. And, you know, I I wasn't, I wasn't managing budgets or running people or things. I was really just a a research scientist in some sense. The very first day I arrived, uh, at ESO, I had to fire three people, uh, for my division, my new division, and I had to approve a one million euro tender. Not having ever seen what a tender document looks like or having ever fired anybody, you know, was a bit of a shock to the system, right? So it's – you have to learn quickly. You're thrown into the deep end. And to run a big project, to run a billion-euro class project, it requires lots of skills. And those skills are not part of the skills you learn to become a scientist in the, in the classical education of a scientist. Okay. You, you learn how to solve equations and you learn how to, you know, analyze data and write programs and things of this kind. So, um, learning how to manage people, uh, manage budgets, run projects, make decisions, uh, that's all part of doing big science. So big science is these billion euro sort of facilities. And you have to learn how to do that if you're going to be a scientist involved in the sort of game, right? So were you, were you f- when you
0: first landed that job and you said yeah. you had this $1 million tender and uh, yeah. were you sort of furiously working away at night to try and figure out the financial situation, I, or, I, you know, all these skills that you sort of need, you need to upskill yourself pretty quickly in that
2: yeah. domain. Yeah. I, I, I l- <laughs> It was a bit of a shock to the system, okay? I, I didn't really know what I didn't know, to be honest with you. Um, I leaned upon more senior people there who had been through the mills, and I said, look, Please help. You know, I need to understand how this all works and how you know, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, you know, cause I, I was having these amazing out of body experiences, right? I mean, just, you know, there was this, sort of room full of people like this and there were this tender document comes by and here's all the tender agreements and the contracts. And, and I was like up in the corner of the room watching down. I think, Oh my God, you know what? <laughs> but, but you have to do it. You have to jump in and do it and you can, can guide by the senior people. But, um, it's, Having an organ, we were lucky in having an organization that had done this many times. And so they were very good about kind of bringing you along and stuff like that. But, but it was a real revelation to me because I, you know, I, when you're in the academic world, when you're trained as a scientist, you're trained to produce scientific results and do publications and things like that. And if you're at a university in particular, your metrics, your judgment is purely on how many papers you produce and how much science you produce and things like that. If you spend some time you know, doing a management course or, or learning how to run people, you'd be considered to be a traitor or on the dark side or something. And you didn't produce any papers. Why did you waste your time doing something other than produce papers? And so the way scientists are judged, by, particularly by academic organizations like universities, um, was almost opposite to the sort of skill set you really needed to acquire to become part of a big project. So when I left Australia being a pure scientist and plunged into this other thing, I knew it was going to be a big hit to my research time, but I'd sort of figured out that that was necessary to be able to be engaged in these big projects. And so I even today, I still see young kids coming in doing their PhDs and things who think they're going to be able to sit at a desk and wear a white coat and solve equations all day. I tell them, look, you, you've got to take risks. You've got to Change your path. You've got to learn things you don't think you should learn or don't want to learn because big research, big science, big projects, which is what research is about today to solve the hard problems. You've got to take these kinds of, you know, right angle turns. We try to teach that in STEM, but yeah. it's really hard to
1: instill that belief that it's actually Useful. Um, yeah. We have to convince them that these are skills that they need to have. I don't want to work with him. I, I don't. Mm. I don't want to solve my own problems. I just want you to tell me an equation to solve, and I'll. I'll yeah. do that. Yeah. Um, how do you? How do you think we address that? I think,
2: for me, at least being part of the big project and communication of, as yeah. well as a scientist communication yeah. is obviously absolutely exactly key. you've got to learn how to oh, absolutely you've got to learn how to communicate and communicate to all sorts of audiences you can't just be talking to other scientists you've got to talk to kids and to politicians in particular politicians learning how to speak to them is a very important skill um, so yeah you have to learn this stuff and I guess you can't, it's hard to do it in abstraction. In other words, just teaching in a classroom is very hard. You have to be involved in an enterprise, a project as such. And so what we're trying to do is get our PhD students hooked into a large external project, whether it's with industry or whether it's with another scientific organization, get into it for three or six or 12 months, see what you need to do to be successful in that environment because it's, you can't. You can't instil the importance of this in people without a positive example of what you need to do, or an authentic example. Yeah, so this sort of um, you know what we call it, internship or or immersion uh, in an environment like that, I think, is far more effective than just sitting up and listening to a lecture in a room, right? Mm. Well, what about the fact though that you need you need
0: people who have real hyper specialisations in things yeah. to do the absolute most cutting edge sort of science. How do they, <clears throat> those scientists still have to just balance that with being able to communicate well with all these other skills you're talking about and be, in a, and, and be very, very focused in a certain area?
2: They do. It is a balancing act. It's much more of a, we're teaching, I think, much more of a balancing act today than we have in the past. So when I, you know, my organization, for example, my institute, we're funded on a five-year basis, Okay. So if a new person comes into the the organization and say look you know you're here for for 5 years but if you want to stay for longer than 5 years it's up to you to contribute to this organization To put the basis of the next funding round in the place and it goes on and goes on, be part of the project going forward. And so they quickly realized that to do that, you've got to do a bunch of jobs. You can't just do your research. Yes, publishing papers is very important, but I have to do education outreach. I have to go and talk to kids in the school. I have to uh, manage a group of people to do a particular task. I have to run a little project to deliver some particular thing. You know, so that, that's part of the, of the training we give to our young career researchers in some sense. And that's essential. You can't, as I said, the, the old idea of a, of a job for life in academia is gone long, long time ago. That's mm-hmm. not what universities are about anymore. Nobody's going to give you a job for life. Maybe Harvard would because it's got the endowment It can. But, but there are very few places in the world that will give you a job for life because they say it's up to you to basically support your existence in this organization. And to do that, research is critical, but so are a whole bunch of other things. Right? So do you assume that they can...
1: That they have knowledge of that before uh, coming into uni? Or do you not, think they should, would, yeah. would you say, no, you're not quite the person we're looking for because you don't have any of these skills?
2: I think when you look at the job ads, job descriptions, you know, the critical, you know, the job determining factors, we put all these things in there these days, right? So it's not just that you've published all these papers, that's wonderful. Um, you've got experience in this and this and this and this. It's in the job description. So we tell kids then, if you want to be successful at the next job, if you can demonstrate you've done, you know, education outreach, uh, project management, um, software engineering, uh, research, or whatever. That's the kind of skill set we want to see. So we we look for the kids who are, you know, have some exposure to this. Obviously, coming straight out of universities, a lot of them don't, and you've got to train them up. So we give our kids media courses, for example, just teach them to sit down and talk to people like you guys in front of front of cameras, in front of mics. That's a, a absolutely essential skill, right? Mm. Uh, because, you know, you've got to, as I said, you've got to be able to talk to the the public and particularly politicians. So, so we try to provide some of the training as well as the practical on, on, you know, training as well. But the job descriptions you will not see anymore. It just says, you know, you've published 10 papers or you've had much so much telescope time or whatever it is. It's not the case.
1: So what else is required from students to get into a
2: career in astronomy? So, as I said before, um, I think Passion is a prerequisite in the sense that um, you, you, you must have a, an intrinsic passion for exploring, finding out, doing research. That has to be your, your driver. If you don't want to do research, then you don't you won't become an astronomer in some sense because that research is kind of the over, overarching passion that pushes you when times are tough, when the project's going you know belly up, or whatever it is, it's that passion for the answer, that's that passion of finding out. That drives you on, right? So you've got to have that. You've got to have that passion. To where, be a does, where do you get
1: that? And this isn't necessarily necessarily your area of speciality. But we talk about this on a daily basis
2: yeah. as teachers. Yeah. How
1: do you get intrinsic motivation out of a student?
2: Uh, look, I, I honestly think it, that there has to be some seed of it, some germ of it there to begin with. I mean, I, you know, from can't where, be taught. I don't think it can be taught. I think, I think from an early age, I was. Interested in science. I thought science was cool because you, know, you do lots of fun stuff with chemicals and going on as well. And then it slowly evolved into particular interests and particular passions about particular problems and particular individuals, you know, excite you. Unless that's there, unless that, as I said, what, you know, Feynman called it the joy of finding out. Unless that's in your soul, right? I don't think a research career is what you really are looking for. Because a research career is hard. It's really hard. As I said, you've research jobs are almost always short term. They're very, very, very competitive, particularly if the research area is extremely interesting internationally. So you end up being a vagabond, you know, a, a nomad, going around the world and hit two years here and one year there, and it's hard having a family, it's having having a marriage. It's a, we've had, a, Kate was saying before, 17 houses in my married life so far, you know. So um, it's it, it's not easy, right, to be a research scientist, not at all easy. Um, so you have to have that passion to drive you in the hard times to get. You up there, and if you don't want to be a researcher, then great. Go and do your bachelor's degree. Go and do a master's degree. Go out into industry. Go out into teaching. Go out into the you know the more applied kind of areas and do that. That's that's fantastically rewarding stuff. But research is a different thing. It's a very uncertain, a very demanding thing. So yes, it's you know in the past there were. You know, maybe as many astronomers as there were jobs, these days there are far more astronomy-qualified people than there are jobs. So the astronomers are going out into all sorts of career paths, which is good because we do train them to do that. But you've got to have that passion. and I don't don't think you can teach that. I think it has to be there to begin with. And then once you've got the passion, as I said, that provides the motivation, um, I think, to take on some of these hard tasks, hard chores, hard times, to learn to go to the left and to the right in your career path, you know, for for a time, if the passion is the research that's driving you forward, sorry, passion is the research that's driving you forward, um, you might say, "Gee is you know, I've got to stop doing my research for three years and do that job because that'll get me to that result." And and that's hard, okay, really hard. Yeah, the adaptability is something we talk about yeah. quite a bit as well. Being it able is. to
1: change paths and knowing when it's COVID's. Uh, seen a lot of change, and I think people that have gone down certain pathways have, mm-hmm. and can't change have, have
2: been really restricted. Exactly. No, I think you, you have to know sometimes it, it happens by accident. You know, things just present themselves. Sometimes it's very deliberate, but my experience is most of the times it's fairly ra- fairly random, actually. So you know, things happen and think, hmm, okay, that's an interesting – I hadn't thought about that one, and maybe that's something I should be doing. Right? And you were saying before that it, some, some of these projects
1: can be almost – Half of your career in terms of time scale? They, they can,
2: yeah. So, I mean, in the space related areas, like, you know, projects like Hubble took 20, 30, 40 years to kind of go from idea from the nineteen, the early 1970s all the way through to the end of the decade, end of the century. Um, SKA is going to be 20 or 30 years. You know, the VLT project I was working on in Chile was 20 years. It's so, a very, very large telescope, isn't it? Very large. Yeah, you know, we don't have very good names <laughs> in astronomy, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> The, the next, the next one after the VLT is the ELT. Extremely large. Extremely large. Sounds yeah. good. Um, <laughs> 10 points too. Um, so no, it, it's, 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 um, you know, you've got to, um, you know, be aware that these projects do take a large chunk of your career. So they, they, you know, they are very demand. They, you know, they can be two or three of them in your career path, but usually they're very, there's lots of, you know, zigzaggies in those projects as well, from maybe the research side to the technical side to the management side to the leadership side to the yeah. education side. They're Sounds all. Sounds quite varied. It but is. But I wonder, yeah. I mean, we,
1: we talk a lot about the instant generation, instant gratification generation yeah. want to have constant change yeah. in their careers. The, the thought of a, a 20 year uh, job is probably. Quite foreign to a lot of young kids. Yeah, I think, it, yeah, I think it's, as I
2: said, it's not. So, I mean, there could be many jobs in that twenty years. It's all part of the same project. These big projects, as I just you know said, there were. There's lots of roles to play, and you tend to migrate through them as you become more experienced. But yeah, it's 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 a commitment to a particular result. I mean, you know, that's that's just where we are right now.
0: Um, Peter, can you give us an example or some examples of the different kinds of roles that people have at ICRA? that, that some of our students might, you know, if they're heading into this field potentially, the kind of things they could be doing.
2: So, so, yeah, so it's, it's not a class, what you call a classical research organization. Um, it wasn't set up that way. It was set up as a, as an organization to be, um, very attuned to the needs of the SKA project, obviously. So if we want the SKA project to produce returns in Western Australia, we've got to make sure we've got the right people to do the right jobs. There are sort of four probably main areas of jobs. One, of course, is the science. I mean, you have to be – you want to be able to use the telescope and and at least define the science the telescope should be doing and so understand the challenges and the problems and so do the science. That's obviously a part of the job. The next one is the engineering – um, you need to be able to build or contribute to the building of the telescope because you kind of have to understand the problem to be able to decide how to build it, okay? So it's kind of that way around, you know, what do you need to build to solve the problem? So the engineering and the scientists work very closely together and so having them in the one organisation is fantastic. So we have engineers uh, who are experts in radio technological engineering, you know, antennae and amplifiers and all that sort of stuff. So we have those and, and they can go out to the site and test out ideas and do things like that. So engineering is the second biggest part. The third part is data. I mean, this project's all about data. I mean, data flow, data management, data processing, data visualization. Yeah. You know. Astronomy is a data driven science. Since the 1980s, there's been more data than telescopes, if you know what I mean. It's the data is, is the dominant factor. And so you've got to be able to deal with the data. And so data scientists, data specialists, Programming software engineers, programmers, they are critical to the ecosystem of the telescope as well. And last but not least, education outreach. Okay. You've mm. got to be able to convince people you're doing a good thing. You've got to be able to communicate to people you're doing a good thing and all sorts of people, kids, politicians, people in the street, the media. So those are the four big skill sets that you'll find inside ICRA. Okay. The science, the engineering, the data science and the education outreach. And in terms of the education outreach, is there is there a hell of a lot
0: more in that space that needs to happen than people might think for you to stay sort of relevant in the minds of, of the public and, and you know, yeah. um, send that message that you're trying it's to send? Surprising.
2: So we have a five-person team. Okay, We're a 200-person we're organisation, but there's five people who do the education outreach full-time. Um, this is a time in Australia when there's, basically no more science journalism in the country. I mean, most of the newspapers have not got science journalists anymore, so that's a dying skill. So we've been trying to grow it Mm -hmm. in terms of science communications and education. Um... With social media, you have to have people who can do that, the the Twitters and the Facebooks and the Instagrams. You have to have those sort of skill sets. You have to have the print and and TV media people. You have to have the people who can talk to, as I said, to put up exhibitions, uh, run exhibitions, uh, run events, go to schools, run things like AstroFest. AstroFest is 5,000 people every year. We have the world's well, Southern Hemisphere is the least biggest astronomical festival here in Perth. So that's run by us, so you have to do, be able to run things like that, uh, put presentations and stuff forward the politicians, uh, visiting dignitaries. So it's, it's a bizarre combination of education, protocol, social media, marketing, communications, you know, it's, it's that whole set. Okay, well,
0: I, I wouldn't mind pivoting now, if you don't mind, Steve, to some questions about what we actually might be able to find out through right. the SKA and the science that might get generated mm-hmm. and there's some of the kind of questions that it seeks to answer right. because I've got a few questions here from some students at Scotch, I which like I'd it. love to hit you with. No, go but, um, for it. Yeah. Um, well, perhaps before I hit you with those student yes. questions, could you tell me a little, little bit about some of the questions that you're most excited about that the SKA is hoping to answer? Sure. So,
2: like... Basically, every telescope that's ever been invented, SKA, has been built to answer particular questions. That was what it was designed to answer particular questions. It was designed to find the radiation, the energy, the light coming from the very first objects in the universe, which is a fantastic ambition. So that was, that's its design thing. And it's going to do that in spades, we hope, right? Um, it's also probably going to do stuff it wasn't meant to do, right? So every single telescope that I know about all the big telescopes in the world, whether it's the old ones or the new ones, are almost always known for something that they weren't designed to do. They've sort of found along the way. And so that serendipity, that discovery of the unexpected, is is really exciting because that's makes the blood boil kind of thing. You know, you find something that's what the
1: hell is. Is that was? how dark matter was discovered? Something along those lines? Um Dark yeah, dark matter was if Someone was looking at Yeah. The the rotation of Far off galaxies so, and realize that it pulled in quicker than it should. Yeah, have. there,
2: there is. There, it was, it was an, it was a realization that there was something wrong. Okay, so it was a guy called Fritz Zwicky, who was a Swiss, uh, rather strange man, uh, astronomer, who worked most of his life at Caltech uh, in Pasadena, um, and he realized in the 1950s actually that if you looked at a cluster of galaxies, if you looked at the, you know, big. Sometimes you know, galaxies come in big, like you know, swarms of bees. It's, there's thousands of galaxies all in a big kind of group. And they all move around the center of, you know, they buzz around the center of this sort of group. He realized back then that the galaxies were moving much faster than you would expect just from the light, just from the light of the galaxy. If you took the light of the galaxy, well, that's, uh, the light's proportional to their mass, so, if you figured out the mass of the cluster and you figured out what sort of velocity it should have, the galaxy seemed to be moving too fast. And so, he was the first person to say, "Well, I think there's some missing mass," and he termed that coin that term "missing mass." And that was back in the fifties, and so ever since then, people have found other circumstances, other other situations in which there is missing mass. Sorry. How did you prove that light is proportional to mass? Um, so a star like the sun, okay. Um, it has a certain amount of light coming out of it and it has a certain amount of hydrogen gas that glows to produce that light, right? So the more hydrogen gas you have, the more light you produce, there's more, the more burning you can have, right? So the bigger the star, the brighter it is in some sense. So there is a connection between the luminosity of a star and the and the mass of a star. So that's where in a galaxy, which is just a collection of stars, there's a connection between its luminosity and its mass. Okay. okay. So people realized in the seventies, um, that, you know, the rate at which stars were, um, spinning around the middle of a galaxy was actually faster than you'd expect just from the light from the stars because there was more mass there. And it was actually a guy called, um, Ken Freeman, uh, who was an ex Scott student, um, who was the first person to realize that um, the way that the stars were spinning around galaxies was completely different than what it should be. Hey, you realize that. He realized that. He realized that. Yeah. Scott's student. Yeah. So if, if you can predict, in other words, if you have a distribution of stars and they're all going around in circles, more or less, you can predict how the rotation velocity should change as a function of radius, right? So he predicted, so he predicted what that should be. And then he compared to the observations and the observations showed that it was a completely different curve. It was the whole rotation curve was different. So he said, well, there's obviously some dark matter. And he came up with the dark matter kind of idea. So, yeah. so, you know, so Scotch is intimately connected to the dark matter story. Um, but, but there were many people who kind of found evidence for this, that there was evidence, whether it was clusters of galaxies or spinning galaxies, or there's this amazing thing called gravitational lenses. Okay. So, um, you know, if you have a big bunch of matter and there's a galaxy on the far side of it, when the light comes through this big bunch of matter, it gets distorted like kind of going through a lens right so sometimes you can see really distorted images of galaxies and it's because they're on the far side of some big mass distribution and and when you figure out how much mass you need to distort the galaxy image so much it turns out to help a lot more more of the mass than it's in the in the cluster so there's lots of evidence from different areas of the existence of dark matter around galaxies and um it's one of the, for me that personally that's a, a problem I spent most of my career working on mm. um that I, I com- I'm a computational astrophysicist so I do early in my career I do lots of simulations with computers about how galaxies move and collide and how they get formed and dark matter was all part of that story and then I did a big project to go actually go and look for dark matter and we didn't find any which was disappointing so you know there's there's been I've been involved with the dark matter story for a long time, we don't have an answer on that yet, though. Really, do we? Is, so. Is there, yes. Has it progressed much so, since that time? The evidence gets of its existence gets better, but we continually frustrated about finding the silly stuff. All right, so it's it's ninety percent of the universe that we can't see, which is very frustrating. It's like the iceberg, right? that We can see mm. the top bit, but not the bottom bit. Um, we th- we kind of think we know. Let's just imagine what 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 could it be, right? Just suppose. what we could. So it's obviously got to be dark. It can't be shining stuff because. We don't see anything shining, so like a dead star, for example. So a star, it goes through its life, it runs out of fuel, runs out, it turns off, goes black. All right. So a dead star is a good black thing. A rock, like the moon, it's black, it doesn't shine by itself. Uh, subatomic particles, they don't shine either. They just you know run around little atoms all over the place. So you know, let's try and look at how can we test if the dark matter is one of those things, whether it's a you know a dead star, a rock, a particle, and so there are various experiments that have been run to look for dark matter in those forms, and I was involved with one of them, and no, found nothing. I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't detect it by clever methods, couldn't detect. So in other words, we're running out of options. The only option that's really left is a thing called a WISP, which is an extremely, extremely small atomic particle. It's probably the smallest thing we can even imagine. It turns out that these little wispy things, when they run through the galaxy and interact with the magnetic fields, in the galaxy has magnetic fields, um, it can sometimes go pop and turn into a, a photon. And it turns out those photons are energy in the radio. So in principle, radio telescopes might be able to detect this popping off of these little dark matter wisps and so one of the things SK could do is find dark matter through that path. So we haven't run out of options completely but it's getting a bit scary we're kind of running out of options
0: so What role does quantum physics play in, in how we can understand potentially
2: dark matter? So this last option in particular, this WISP option, uh, is a prediction of the fundamental theory of particles. So quantum and particle, quantum chromodynamics. So it's quantum field theory, which is the, the quantum theory of particles. Okay. Um, so that, they predict the existence of these very light particles. And in fact, when you go through the quantum calculations, it turns out the early universe probably produced very large numbers of these very light particles. And so maybe enough to make all of the dark matter in the universe, right? So there's a, there's a, a hope that, that the universe through a quant, basically a quantum process produced a lot of its early mass in this form of these extremely small particles, right? Mm-hmm. So we haven't given up the, the quest. The We're still hunt- hunting. I hope. You know, before I get to the end of my career, we've found the silly stuff, but um, it's one of those extremely interesting problems where you know it's there, you know it's important, you know it's had a fundamental impact on the way galaxies have have evolved, how the whole universe has evolved, but it's just not kind. You can't touch it, right? There's a possibility that SKA may find something. So it it it's if this radio signal from these very light particles is there, if that's what the dark matter is, then the SKA should be able to find it. Yeah, it's Mm. sensitive enough to do it. Okay.
0: All right, this this might not be a question that necessarily concerns the SKA mm-hmm. so much, but um, one of our students, a year, year 5 student, Sebastian Fugel, yes. has asked, how close are we to knowing much about the habitability of planets beyond our solar system?
2: That's a really good question. Um, that's probably one of the most remarkable things that's happened in astronomy over the last... 30 years or 40 through through my academic career. When I was a young student, there when, you know, the sun had like nine planets at that time. Um, and then there were basically no other examples of planets anywhere else around, that maybe one or two, right? And so there's this famous equation called the Drake equation that predicts, you know, extraterrestrial intelligence. And one of the terms of the equation is how many planets does typical stars have. And that number was almost always zero, right? Over the course of that 30 or 40 year period, um, techniques have evolved to actually measure indirectly the presence of planets around stars. And those experiments now have been incredibly successful. There's a, a, a satellite called Herschel, which has been surveying pretty much every single star in the Milky Way, and lo and behold, pretty much every single star has planets. Right, so it's gone from that term's gone from zero to one. Right, in, in so determined by the the star actually moving on, on so, the central axis. Yeah, so it? there's a couple of techniques. One is the wobble. Yeah, exactly right. So the, basically, the star tends to move around because it's got planets around it. The other one is direct occultation. So basically, a planet moves in front of a, a star. Okay. And block some of the light. So anyhow, we've gone from a complete revolution in some sense from thinking that most stars don't have planets at all to forming planets is absolutely normal part of star formation. So every single star that forms, if it doesn't form planets, there's something kind of weird, right? So so there's, there's 100,000 know, 1, million stars in the Milky Way, so there's 100,000 million planetary systems. In those 100,000 million planetary systems, there is lots and lots of planets that are like the Earth, in other words, they're in the same location with respect to their star. Their star is very similar to the sun, and so habitable zone planets, we're finding lots of them. Right?
1: That seems like a lot of stars to observe. Are you using artificial intelligence or uh, coding to try and help determine whether
2: how many planets are around each star? So we we have this. Uh, We're lucky to have some very advanced satellites up there now. As I said, one one particular one called Herschel, whose mission was just to basically look at a few hundred thousand stars right it was going to look at every single one of those few hundred thousand stars over the course of a five or six year mission and measure the wobble for every single one of them right so we've gone from having data on a handful of stars to a hundred thousand two hundred thousand maybe a million stars right so and you know this this telescope is amazing right so um, you know our knowledge of this presence of some planets around stars has gone astronomically you know orders of magnitude up mm. Got another big question here for yeah. you. Um,
0: this one is, what is the universe ex- This is expanding into? You've probably heard this. Yeah, about this is a, from bil- one of our old guests too, right? We're it is. This is from a, a scholar in residence, Akram. He said, yes. he, how do you conceptualise yeah. what the universe is expanding into? If
2: I had a dollar for every time I get this question. Um, look, it's, it's where uh, analogies break down, okay? So um, – The analogy for the expanding universe that everybody uses is some sort of balloon, right? So you have a balloon, you point dots on it, and you expand it, and all the dots move apart, and that's the galaxies moving apart as the universe expands. It's a good analogy. It it communicates the right sort of physics in some sense. What it doesn't do, of course, is communicate what the universe is really like. The universe isn't a two-dimensional surface, which is a sphere. That's just not what the universe is. Einstein, his work taught us that there was a very intimate connection between the mass of the universe and the energy of the universe. And so it turns out that the geometry, the shape of the universe, is intimately connected to the mass in the universe, and it's described by the Einstein equations. So effectively, space is determined by where the mass is, And then the mass fills the space that it determines, right? So it's like a self-propagating kind of idea. So thinking about outside of that doesn't make any sense because there is no outside, right? Because the only place where space exists is where the mass and energy exist. So there's no outside because there isn't any outside. Right. There's, there's, no space out there. Right. It's kind of a different, difficult thing to visualize. It. It's, mm-hmm. so this, so this is the problem. As I said, you, you think of an, try to think of an analogy of that. It's very, very hard to think of mm-hmm. one. You can't use the balloon anymore because there's an outside the balloon and inside the balloon. But in the, try to think a bit like the Einstein idea that as I said mass and space and time are all intimately, space, time and energy and mass are all connected and they all effectively one creates the other. So it's like a connected loop. So you can't have one without the other in some sense.
0: And how, so how do you explain the fact that the universe is expanding at an increasing rate, how,
2: so that given, was, given
0: what we know about dark matter? That was a surprise.
2: And- yeah, that was a real surprise. That was, in fact, Brian Schmidt, who's uh, visited Scotch several times, uh, won the Nobel Prize for that discovery. Um, so it's a weird one. Okay, so we we think the only force that's relevant to the universe is gravity. You know? The only force that's long range and strong enough to affect the whole universe is gravity. Electromagnetism is very sh- sort of effectively short range. It deals with atoms and things like that. Gravity is a long range, very weak, but long range force, and it can m- mold the way galaxies move. So um, gravity, of course, is attractive force. It's not a repulsive force. So if you take a ball and throw it up, you know, it goes up and up and up and eventually stops and falls back down. And we kind of had that picture for the universe, that the universe began with a big bang, it would go out and out and out and and maybe eventually it'll stop and perhaps even fall back down again, because gravity was always trying to pull it back together, right? Finding that the universe, for whatever reason, was accelerating into expansion means that there's something which is like anti-gravity or a pressure, you know, something was pushing it out. So what where does this pressure come from? I mean, you can imagine if I gave you a box, right, and I told you the box was completely empty, there were no atoms, no molecules, no nothing in a perfect vacuum, and you pushed on the box and it sprang back, you'd be a bit surprised, right? So, so what's causing, what's co- so people? one of the analogies is invisible bed springs. Like the whole universe is full of these invisible bed springs, and and and, and it just pushes, right? And nobody, we don't have a good idea, and that's good. Okay, because we know there are things missing in our theory, our picture for the universe. We know in this last century, in the 20th century and this century, we have two incredibly successful theories of, of the universe. We have the theory of quantum, the quantum theory, and Planck and these people. And we have the theory of gravity, Einstein's theory. So one describes the very large, one describes the very small. And they're both individually fantastically... You you can test Einstein's theory to 14 decimal places. It works to 14 decimal places, right? Fantastic. When you try to describe the early universe, which is the Big Bang, when everything was basically compressed into a very small volume, so you've got the energy and gravity of the whole universe, but in the size of atoms, right? So you're trying to push the quantum theory and the gravity theory into the same place to work together. When you try to do that, it breaks both theories fail to describe that. You can't describe. You, people have been trying for years, including Einstein, tried to marry together these two ideas of, of quantum and gravity to describe the early universe, and it just fails. You, you just get one over zero. You just it doesn't work anymore.
0: And there's still attempts, isn't there, to set still for a to do yeah, but, 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 of... but, but
2: nobody's got there yet. Okay, mm. this dark energy thing was a surprise. And a lot of people think that if we understand, but part of understanding that story is solving the quantum and the gravity story. The thing that's some of the things that the thing that's missing in that theory will help us understand the dark energy. Okay, so that's why discoveries are like like Brian Schmidt's you know, are incredibly important because they point to aha, uh-huh, look, you forgot about that thing. You didn't even. That's what telescope. that's you know. That's one of the things where telescopes discover things you don't expect, right? Nobody expected expansion to accelerate. I mean, that's just crazy, but it does, and that tells you you've missed something important. So uh, what are the implications for the way the SKA is able to find
0: things out given the fact that the, the universe is expanding uh, at an
2: accelerating rate? How does that impact so, the way that yeah. – what the SKA can find? Yeah. Is that going to – So the SKA is critical to the story and for the following reason. So – the, the data that Brian Schmidt and his colleagues took on this expanding, you know, accelerated expansion, um, it came from looking at fairly shallow into the universe. In other words, we, we are, uh, looking at maybe a one-tenth the way back to this, this first objects. So we know in that last one-tenth of the universe, there's evidence of this expansion, right? Question. Has it always been there? In the other nine-tenths of the universe, was it also accelerating? Was there some point in that ten-tenths that it started and stopped expanding or or, being pushed? So part of the clues or finding the clues to this dark energy comes from understanding how this thing evolved over the cosmic history. And so you need to have a telescope that can give you the cosmic history story, and that's what SK is about.
1: Who who funds uh, these kind of projects? The Ska and and do you have to get government funding? So absolutely. Well, you have to get multiple government funding, which is where the fund starts. Or is there um, any innovators or entrepreneurs that will, like invest to, depending not, on what uh, possibilities and technologies this,
2: come out? Yeah, not at this level. There are there are entrepreneurs in the world, mostly in the US actually, um, who are willing to invest hundred million dollars in a science project because they think it's fun or they think it's you know may give some technology. Um, we're talking about billion, multi-billion euro projects and so nobody that i know of has done those privately they've all come from government science budget investment but they're all these projects are all much bigger than any one country's science budget so that's why you need a bunch of countries to gang together um, to do them collaboratively so european southern observatory is 15 countries been around for 60 years it's what's called an intergovernmental organization so it's a treaty level thing like nato and things like that so it, 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 they join together. The governments of those countries agree to put a whole bunch of money into a particular enterprise for a bunch of reasons, for a bunch of technical reasons and scientific reasons and commercial reasons. They all agree to do it. So you have to build these intergovernmental organizations or intergovernmental agreements, at least, to be able to do these big projects. And that's very, that's part of the skill set you need, you know, you have to be like an international politician in some sense, not just talking to one government, but 15 governments. I mean, that's one of the other things I learned when I was at ESA that you go to the council meetings, you've got 15 countries sitting around the table all speaking different languages and different cultures and different ideas. You've got to get them all onto the same page and convince them that they're, you know, if they're putting in a billion euros, they're getting their money's worth, right? So it's, so that it's, it, it's that management of those international relations is important to be able to do. And you're not going to do the big science without that. I mean, as I said, the kind of projects we run today are a billion euros, or two billion euros. The space projects are going up to six and seven and eight and 10 billion euros. And
0: have you seen that um in political enthusiasm fluctuate much over over your career um, as you've been trying to
2: put these big projects together? Yeah, I have. I think uh, it's it's interesting. i The SKA project's amazing in Australia, I'm talking about now. Um, I've been involved with it for, you know, going on for 15 years now in Australia. Um, We've been through multiple changes of government, both at the state level and the federal level, multiple changes of politicians and parties and prime ministers and scientists. The support has continued all the way through, okay? Now, why should that be the case? The reason is... Politicians, they're nice people mostly, but, and they're not interested in black holes or stars or galaxies. They're interested in economic returns and, and jobs and things like that. So one of the nice things about being involved in a big project like the SK is it has that ability to produce returns, to produce all sorts of returns, not just the just a science, but other kinds of returns as well. So governments understand that. They see that they identify with it, whether it's diversifying the economy or growing new skill sets or starting a new industry or a new company or giving SME's opportunities or whatever it happens to be, that motivates, you know, political involvement and, and governmental involvement. So in Australia, it's been a fantastic success story in some sense. Internationally, um, it's been ups and downs. I think some countries at ESO, some countries came in, they also went out. They were, you know, they were getting what they wanted, or they weren't getting what they wanted. So, you know, it, it's it's um it's an evolving story. Uh, if but this one particular project is has managed to attract this, at least in Australia, consistent interest
0: but that that's certainly not true for other big scientific projects that it, people have tried to get off the ground right i mean there has been uh, arguments out there saying that that science funding has yeah not not for the SKA but has dropped uh, mm-hmm. in other areas yeah, and I, in a lot of areas is that right and i think
2: i th- yes that's that's completely true and, and and i think some of that has been um the lack of an ability to diversify the return okay so that um, you know, if you can demonstrate that um, the people remain interested, but if you're just—I you know, say just—you know—if you're just asked I you know, finding the Higgs boson, you know, and that's all you want, uh, and so what does politicians care about whether there's a Higgs boson or not, right? Um, but it's CERN's been very successful at doing that because it's got so much spin-off and so much industry return and mm. things like that. So you know, I think um, I think some projects probably haven't played that card strong enough in some sense, particularly. Early projects or young projects or projects that are just getting off the ground, they've really got to, you know, scientists want to know what science is going to be done. That's fine. But you've got to be able to appeal to the broader returns. If you want to raise a billion dollars, you know, no matter where it is, you're going to have to appeal to that very broad return.
0: Okay. I think we're um, nearing the end. We've always got a couple of quick-fire questions at the end uh, that we're going to spring on you here, Peter, if you don't mind. sure. This has been amazing, so we really, really appreciate oh, you coming pleasure, in tonight. No, it's, it's fantastic. And thank you, Kate, for coming along as well. Have we done okay? <laughs> yeah. Are we, do we get the tick of approval? Absolutely. There <laughs> are a couple
2: of little things
0: that Peter's left out on you, like how many countries are involved in the SKA. Yeah, that's okay. We'll, we'll fill it but in. That's okay. Okay. That's okay. okay. <laughs> we'll give you a chance to weave that in uh, later. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Besides astronomy, yeah. how do you relax?
2: <laughs> Uh, well, I like a, like a glass of wine. Um, I enjoy pretending I can play the guitar. I love photography, and I spend a lot of time in the bush with my cameras and taking photographs of birds. So, What kind of guitar have you got? I have a Gibson 339, which I bought myself Ooh. for my 65th birthday, which I love.
0: That is a nice guitar.
2: And an Old Matin, which is even better. No, oh so. yeah, yeah okay. You've, yeah. Got, you've got a maiden, haven't you? I got two. Yeah. yeah, a mini maiden and a twelve string. No, I got so, a six maiden. It's it's a it's a bit of goodie. Yeah. yeah. So what are you playing at the moment? On on. Uh, I don't. am trying to become a. <laughs> we've actually got a guitar. I'm trying to become a jazz guitarist, but that's a long, long, long ambition. Oh, basically. that's yeah, yeah, that's
0: tough. Yeah, it's tough. Okay, deserted island. Favorite album.
2: Uh, Pink Floyd, animals. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Yeah.
0: Okay, Alex, Alex was, I believe, um, Blood on the Tracks Bob Dylan from Bob Dylan. the late 60s Okay, and we've had, what have we had lately? Queen? Uh, we had a Ben Folds Ben Folds, um, The Police Yeah. Blood on the Tracks That's a good one Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll move on yeah. uh, <clears throat> What book or books has had the most profound impact
2: on you? In my young days, there was a guy called George Gamov, G-A-M-O-W, a a Russian physicist who wrote a bunch of books. Uh, called Mr. Tompkins, uh, Mr. Tompkins in paperback. And they were basically books for young people to understand quantum mechanics and science. And, and he, he painted it, he wrote it, he talked about it without equations of any kind. He just talked about as if the quantum world was a big world and you could explore it. He was an incredibly gifted writer and a scientist who knew what he was talking about. So I was very motivated in my young days by um, George Gamow and his books. Later on, um, Jacob Bronowski. Uh, I was a very big fan of *The Center of Man*. I thought *The Center of Man* was one of the best things I ever read, and it, and it excited me about that journey of discovery, journey of knowledge. And so, I still have a paperback copy of *The Center of Man* on my desk.
0: Oh wow! Okay.
2: Mm. Okay, what has
0: been the biggest challenge you've faced uh, in in your career?
2: I think. Having the courage to change things, um, I think being able to sort of realize that I needed to learn new things and do things that I wasn't trained to do, or uh, I'd been told if I did them, I would be a failure, right? Uh, so, you know, when we were in Australia at Mount Stromlo, when I was still a, a real scientist doing dark matter stuff, um, I said, I'm going to go, I'm, I don't like, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to Go off to ESO and learn how to build big telescopes. And I was that people. A lot of people said you're you're mad, right? You're gonna you're you're leaving the subject. You're gonna be a failure, right? So, so that that was hard to take. It was hard to hear, but I realised that you know that's kind of where I needed to go. So that was challenging. Yeah. Okay, change. Yep. Yeah.
0: One more. Yeah. What habit have you formed in the last five years that's been most beneficial to you?
2: Making, well, it's, whether it's a habit or not, um, I think listening better than I've listened before, particularly to people, and then making decisions. Okay, mm-hmm. I think um, a lot of people avoid decisions, and and that's that's tough. Uh, I think that's that's not a good it's it's kind of still a
1: decision anyway, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I, I
2: had a, I had I had the fortunate. I was very fortunate to have a guy um, be my boss twice. Uh, his name was ricardo giacconi um he won the nobel prize for physics uh, he was my boss at space telescope and my boss at esa and he gave me a few life lessons okay and one was make don't avoid decisions make them with a bit of lucky we half right half the time <laughs> <laughs> so i that was good 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 advice so i'm um, right half the time at least um the other dis- the other thing he gave me was um Early to bed, early to rise. Work hard and advertise. Okay, right. And I think that's also a good life lesson as well. So yeah, so those are the. I think making listening and making decisions. I think is 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 a, is a habit that I probably have learnt and tried to you know, adopt very very actively. Yeah. Well, we better All ask right.
1: Kate's question as well. How many countries are
2: involved with SKA? Yeah, well there you go. How many countries are involved? Fourteen. Yeah, it it, it 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 fluctuates a bit. Okay, fifteen at the moment. It could be it could be up to seventeen if things, we play our cards right. But yeah, about about that. Um, yeah. One. All right. Yeah, Peter. Is there anything else
0: before we finish that you that you wanted to share with our particularly our students here
2: at Scotch? Yeah. Um, before we go. Uh, sure. I think one thing I wanted to talk a little bit about was was. How important so when you're trying to convince people what you're doing is is impactful and important, okay? Um, and so that yes, the science of the SKA is impactful and important. But it's also the other things that the challenges we have to face and meet during doing that and how that benefits society more broadly. Uh, yes, astronomy is fantastic, it excites kids, it excites also. so it's intrinsically good. We've had two examples now with the skills that we've developed for the SKA producing stuff which has nothing to do with the SKA, which is, I think, incredibly impactful for science. Okay, so let me give you one example. We had to, our engineering team, our astrophotonics team, had to invent a a way of sending signals from the central computer of the SKA all the way out to the dishes and and back again over fiber optics. And these fiber optics are 1,000 kilometers long in some cases, right? So as you send signals over these cables, they're out in the sun and they get bent and you know lizards walk over them and things. And so you have to correct the signal in very clever ways to make sure it stays stable and correct. So they invented the system to make the signal stable and correct over these long distances. And that's going to get built into the SKA, so great. Turns out the system that they've invented for this is exactly the system you need if you want to send a laser beam, say, from the Earth to a satellite in orbit. As you send a laser beam from the Earth's surface to a satellite, it goes through the air, and it gets twisted by the air, of course. And so by the time it gets to the satellite, it's all messed up. So you have to correct it. So they've, their system they invented for the SKA is now applicable to sending laser beams to satellites. Why would you want to send a laser beam to the satellite? Answer, if you want to send a very large amount of data from a satellite to the ground or from the ground to a satellite, you, radio is very limited. You, that's what we use right now. If you send it optically with a laser beam, you can send about probably a 1,000 times more data. So if you want HD television of the first woman on the moon, you need a laser beam to send the signal to the Earth, and so we've invented the system to do that. Oh, wow, right. that is incredible!
0: Right, so so, so it's, that's it's, that, and that's clearly going to be an incredibly commercial,
2: commercialised so, product. So we're now we're now working on a prototype optical ground station network in Australia. So we're telescopes that send laser beams to satellites. One of them here in Perth on the roof of the physics building very soon, um, and that's an example of translating. The skill sets that we develop by doing these big astronomy projects to other areas of society. So, you know, this, this is part of what big, you know, the Apollo program did it going back to Apollo again. Yeah, you know, that they did it. We will continue to do it. These big science projects are not just about the science. They're about all sorts of challenges that need to get solved. And those challenges are very often applicable to all sorts of interesting problems, like this problem of sending lots and lots of data up and down to the sky. Has that been commercialized? Um, on the verge. Yeah. On the verge. We can't, I can't talk about very much. (laughs) But, but I know, but we have several companies we're working with who are going to commercialize this system. And that'll be, Australia will be one of the leading optical ground station network players in the world. And as I said, we've got a contract from, in fact, two weeks ago. We got the first contract from, um, the Australian Space Agency, from NASA, from the Australian, via the Australian Space Agency to develop support for the Artemis project. So we're now supporting the Artemis project. Wow,
0: that is incredible. Yeah, have thanks. you have um, you met Elon Musk?
2: No. I haven't met. Elon Musk. But he could come knocking. He could come knocking, yeah. So so you know, the kids to understand it's not yes, it's about the astronomy, but it's about lots of other interesting stuff as well. Is I, I
0: noticed um on the ICRA website, one of your team, yeah. um, gentlemen's in charge of
2: Translation is that yeah. is that what
0: you're referring to? So or is that a different kind of translation? That's translation,
2: yeah. So there's there's a translation program is exactly this program. So taking the skills that we have and translating them into other areas. There's a whole bunch of interesting one, and it covers all the way from ocean waves and petrol tankers to honeybees. You know, all, all those all those different areas have problems that they're trying to solve. Where we're finding ways to translate the SKA skill set into solving problems in those spaces yeah. oh, that sounds wow. like a really interesting job incredible yeah it's good fun so it's, the, the translation managers has a lot of fun basically. yeah I can imagine yeah okay
0: Peter, thank you so much for coming pleasure. into the range project and coming into scotch and we also have to another big shout out to Kate thank you so much for um, for, for arranging this out. for us yeah,
2: yeah my <laughs> pleasure really love talking to you oh, was you. Great fantastic thank, thank, you.
0: You. thank you thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Range Projects, proudly supported by Scotch Parents, Scotch Teaching and Learning and the Old Scotch Collegians Association.